You must remember that we were going through the worst storm that ever happened. And that boat was rolling like a cork on the sea. It did everything but turn upside down. Well underway on a November day, the Nova Dock bound for Quebec. Well, we didn't realize we were in trouble until later on in the afternoon. And then when I couldn't steer it anymore, the waves were just pushing us ashore. And I turned the wheel hard over and uh, nothing had happened. So, so uh, we, they just, we just ended up on the beach then. 17 cried for the 60 who died. There's no silence to be safe for sure. Safe. These are voices from Lake Michigan's worst gale, the Armistice Day Storm of 1940. Three steel freighters were destroyed in 126 mile per hour winds. Two fish tugs and four entire crews vanished into the killer winds, leaving no one to tell what happened. There's been hundreds of boats went down on the Great Lakes, literally hundreds of them. Most of them went down and nobody ever lived to tell about it. But the reason that Novodok made history. It went aground, and all, pe all the people except two lived to tell about it. That was why it made history. I'm Rick Mixter. I've made it my life study to find eyewitnesses to history, and today we'll hear from several men caught in a November gale over three quarters of a century ago. These are exclusive interviews, and I ask that you respect that by not reproducing any of the commentary without written permission from Airworthy Productions. This rare look at one of the Great Lakes' most notorious storms is only found on Great Lakes Make Stories. Let's go back to the times of the Great Depression in Ontario, Canada on Georgian Bay where 16-year-old Lloyd Belcher knew his family didn't have money to send him to high school, and he knew he didn't want to work in the grain docks that made his dad sick. They used to tell me I was building a dream. That was in 1936, and there wasn't too many jobs, and, uh, and to go to high school, I'd have to go to Midland, and it was quite costly, so I didn't want him to look after my education then, so I said, well, I'll go sailing. And, See how, how I make out. <laughs> Lloyd laughs because his sailing career would bring two narrow escapes from death while he was at the wheel in World War II and during the Armistice Day storm. His first adventure began aboard the British-built Novadoc, a 12-year-old small freighter designed for river use. In fact, uh, our last trip, we were down the Saguenay River, and he got orders to go to uh, Chicago and load powdered coke and take it back down to the Saguenay, Port Alford, and then we were going to make our last trip. The Novodoc's crew totaled 19, including a brand new sailor in the engine room. Howard Goldsmith was from Singhampton, Ontario. Okay, when we left Chicago, it was dead calm. We were heading for Montreal with a load of carbon coke. It was our last trip of the season. Now, little did we know that we were going out into the second worst storm that ever happened on the Great Lakes. And in order for to realize what a storm like that was like, 
You had to go through it. Howard had fit out the Novodoc in the spring, taking an entry-level job as fireman, stoking the two massive boilers that created steam for the engine. It was his brother Clifford that coaxed him into joining the Novodoc's crew. You see, I really didn't want to go sailing in the first place. I could make more money cutting wood than I could sailing. All I could make was $80 a month sailing. I could make more money than that cutting wood and selling it. And I didn't want to go, but my brother, he wanted me to go. And I wish that I hadn't gone. Run aground just a few months earlier, Novodoc had been a shipwreck at least twice before. Now with a newly repaired bottom hull, it was loading powdered coke in Chicago for aluminum manufacturing. It's a byproduct of uh of coal, I guess, uh, and uh, it's like a powder, uh, fairly heavy. And uh, so we were the first one to load. There was two other ships come in with, you know, the Patterson fleet, and uh, we were the first ones to load. So uh, we got out about five o'clock in the morning. Then as we're going out through the breakwater, the uh, captain yelled to the uh, Coast Guard. They had a station right there. We were right alongside of them. so. Uh, yeah, he, he, he asked for a latest weather report and said, uh, well, they said there wasn't any change, there wasn't any. So uh, we figured we were going to be all right. Captain Donald Steep was new to the Novodoc, but not to the lakes. He knew his ship was among the smallest freighters on the lakes, and he'd need to take precautions as the barometer started to fall. That was indicating bad weather was moving in. When we come out of Chicago, it was blowing a bit, but it wasn't too bad. and. Uh, so the captain thought, well, he'll, he'll go up the, uh, the east side. And then, see, the wind was from the south, uh, uh, southeast, so we, we were protected on the shore. But, but during the uh, course of the day, the wind shifted around to the west, uh, the south, southwest, and then it got bigger and bigger. And, and it was too late to go over to the other shore. So uh, we just had to uh, follow up and just getting, get, getting worse and worse. And, and uh, there's nothing we could do then. The crew didn't know it, but this storm was actually born on the West Coast. And on November 7th, it had destroyed a suspension bridge in Tacoma, Washington. Now it was roaring up the expanse of Lake Michigan. Novodoc had six hatches, each essentially 29-foot holes in the deck, that were kept watertight by metal lids covered with tarpaulins. The integrity of these covers was crucial as the waves started washing over the deck. But wheelsman Lloyd Belcher remembers watching in horror as the cover started to rip apart in the tempest. As the waves were going over the deck, uh, there was a split in the uh, tarp of the num number one hatch, so uh, Captain sent me down with another man and uh, we found a board in the four peaks, so we took it out and, and we nailed it down on top of the uh, split in the canvas. And uh, we made it pretty secure. In the back of the ship, fireman Howard Goldsmith was starting to get tossed around as he tried to keep his boiler fed with coal. It was a crucial assignment as the steam kept the propeller turning and in control in the mounting storm. I'll try to tell you what it was like. You couldn't tell what was going on outside. You're in that fire hall, and you're trying to keep steam up 
So Fred Chesel knew what we were up against, and he put four men in the fire hole to fire that boat. Two men to each boiler. One guy would hold the door open, the other guy would bail the coal in. And in firing the boat, there's something tricky about it. You take a shovel full of coal, and when you go to throw it in, you have to let the heel of the shovel hit the dead plate. That way, the coal spreads over the fire. You can't just throw it in in a heap. That won't work. You have to hit that dead plate. And that was a hard thing to do with that, that boat rolling like that. And you had to wait. You had to wait until you got in position in order for you to throw the fire, to throw the, the coal in. You couldn't do it when the boat was up like that. You had to wait until it come down fairly level, then you could throw it in. The direction of those winds were compounding their plight in the gale. As the further north they went, the bigger the waves are building from the winds that are pushing up the lake. Now the Novodok is rolling heavily with winds pushing 126 miles per hour. It's terrifying because you don't, you can't see what's going on. And the boat is turning everything but upside down. It did, it turned everything but upside down. And you have no, no idea what it was like in the fire hole. It was something else. The tops of the waves, called crests, were reaching 30 feet. Novodok was falling into the valley of those freshwater mountains called the trough. We were in the trough for hours, just rolling, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't steer it, uh, so it was just, just rolling all the time. So there was, uh, at one point, he, uh, he uh, put the uh, Chad Burnett uh, at uh, double speed, you know, so the, uh, the engineer would give it everything it had, you know, and, uh, and then I turned it hard a port to uh, try and straighten it up. And eventually we did get it out. We, we got it going out straight. And then the first big wave would come and broke all the windows in the wheelhouse. And uh, well, then we're in water up to our knees then. So we knew we were, we were finished. So uh, we got back in the trough of the waves and uh, then just kept pu pushing into it and ended up on a beach. Now the waves were hammering the ship, and the glass in the pilot house didn't stand a chance. The first mate, Richard Simpel, who had once been the skipper on the Novodoc, was hit by debris when the windows let loose. He, he was pretty close to the glass when it, went, when it broke in the wheelhouse, and uh, it just missed me. Uh, I was lucky. Uh, he was the worst one. Uh, he, got the, he got the brunt of it. And then the water came right in with it, so uh, it, it was quite a quite a mess there for a little bit. Captain Simpel later divulged this wasn't his first maritime disaster. It was in the paper he was on, I don't know, 15 shipwrecks or something like that, but uh, I don't know whether there was that many or not, but <laughs> he wanted to swim to shore with a line and uh, so a captain wouldn't let him. There's no way he would have uh, got into shore. November the 11th, no, it was the 11th, the, that was the 13th before we were rescued. The water's cold then, and there was a lot of ice on deck, and in fact, there was a lot of ice all over the, all the winches, and everything was just coated with ice. We were at the 
mercy of the waves, and we knew it. That boat did everything except turn upside down. And at 10 o'clock at night, Fred Chesel, he was the second engineer, he says, Howard, he says, we're going aground. He says, I want all you people to go up into the oiler's room. That was on the lee side of the storm. He says, I want you to go up into that room. I want you to stay there. Don't go anyplace else. And that's what we did. A few minutes later, we heard a, or felt a thud. We knew we were aground. A minute later, there were seven men standing in the oiler's room. When we hit bottom, it just went bang, and uh, then that's when the deck split, and uh, then the, it filled up with water fast. So uh, when, when that happened, the captain told uh, the mate to go down to, and see if he could drop the anchors, just in case that uh, it started going back out again. So between waves, he was able to do that. He dropped both anchors and uh, then come, come back up. But then the wheelhouse was so wet, we ended up down in the captain's quarters. And that's where we uh, spent the rest of the time. The boilers were essentially time bombs as the cold water slowly crept into the engine room. Second engineer Fred Chessel opened the safety valves to prevent an explosion as the waves broke the gangway door. With no generator power, the ship went dark. Lloyd Belcher abandoned his post at the wheel as the forward crew went below to seek safety from the storm. We all got out of the, uh, the wheelhouse and then went down to, it's down to the next deck. And that's where his cabin was. And uh, so it was all dark, so we just had to feel our way in. And there was a bed and a few chairs there, so the group of us all sat around there then and just hope for the best. We knew there wasn't any uh, lifeboats because they were broken up. And one went floating right up past us. I was still in the wheelhouse when, uh, when uh, the starboard uh, life, lifeboat let go. And it went right up alongside of us. So I thought, oh, it wouldn't be any good to us anyway. So we'd never get back there. And they didn't have floats or anything for, you know, in the bow end. With no telephone to talk to the back of the ship, the crew stared back across the deck for any sign of survivors in the stern. They were back there and we knew they, they were in the uh, oiler's room, right in the corner on the starboard side. And uh, we knew there was life back there because we could see the, uh, they had the porthole open and they were bailing water out. Uh, see, the door didn't go right down to the level of the deck. It was up about, uh, Oh, 12, 14 inches. So that's how much water was in there all the time. So uh, all the ones in the uh, stern were in water the, all the 36 hours. And they took turns in bailing and it was continuous all the time. It was coming from all over, in the door, in the, through the ceiling, all over. And don't believe it, it was cold because there was ice all over everything. There was snow all over everything. It was Armistice Day, you know, the 11th of November. You can imagine how cold it was. 
the engine was out and the lights were out. See, we didn't have any light. It, uh, we found a pail after daylight came. There was a pail up in the captain's room, uh, a steel pail. So we started breaking up furniture and uh, putting pieces of wood in the uh, pail and then opened a porthole on the, on the starboard side and uh, that would let the smoke out. And uh, we took turns in warming our hands. It gave us a little bit of heat, not an awful lot, but uh, enough to warm our hands every once in a while. After a freezing first night on the stranded freighter, it was apparent there'd be no meals for anyone on board. We had all the water around us, but we couldn't drink it and uh, no, no food. So we were getting a bit hungry at the, at the last, but of course we weren't thinking of that. We were just thinking of being rescued. Between snow squalls, we could, uh, we could pick out the light, little point sable light that we had passed earlier in the day. We, 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 we could pick it up once in a while. And then the next day, we, uh, we seen people on the shore and they were, uh, there was a car and oh, maybe 25, 30 people there. And as the day went on, the people kept coming and coming and my gosh, I, I think there was a hundred there before the day was over. The lighthouse keeper at Little Point Sable had already reported the Novodoc was in trouble and the Coast Guard attempted to find the ship in the darkness. Rescuers from White Lake were the first to arrive, replaced by stations in Muskegon and Grand Haven, whose life-saving gear was driven as far as they could on an old logging road. First reports were the waves were breaking against a 100-foot cliff and it would be impossible to assemble their rescue equipment. In Ludington, the Coast Guard assembled their breaches buoy to rescue 45 crew and five passengers on the City of Flint car ferry. Only two came ashore in the hoist, dunked repeatedly into the freezing waves. The car ferry captain canceled any more trips on the line. On board Novodoc, Lloyd wondered when the Coasties would come. We knew there was a Coast Guard up Ludington. Of course, there was a Pentwater too, but uh, uh, I don't think they could have got out to us anyway. It was too rough. The waves were 20 feet high, I guess, and, uh, and uh, snowing. And uh, no, I, I don't think they could have reached us. Calls to the Coast Guard Command in Chicago brought instructions to, quote, take it easy and don't take any chances. It seemed many believed Novodoc was aground and not going to sink any further into the water, and no one saw any signs of life until they had been stranded for nearly 18 hours. By then, the beach was packed with onlookers, including two fishermen from Pentwater. Belcher remembers the encouragement they found with so many witnesses on shore. You know, just to see all these people, you say, well, they're going to do something for us. I don't, I don't know what, but uh, in a way, they, uh, every once in a while during the night, they, they'd flash their uh, car lights, and uh, that meant something to us. And then uh, when morning come, uh, I took a sheet off the captain's bed and I ripped it in half. And uh, I opened the, the door on the starboard side and I, I waved this sheet up and down. And uh, I talked to some of the people afterwards and they said they saw that. <laughs> Rescue would still be at least 12 hours away. At daybreak, Captain Steep decided it was safe enough to cross the broken deck and reunite the crew he would find that the cooks Philip Flavin and Joseph DeShaw were missing. Yeah, the, when the captain went back to get the after crew, uh, they, they, they told him that the cooks were gone. 
they, they were washed overboard. The galley was pushed in and uh, there was a skylight back there and uh, it was caved in. Because see, the waves were just rolling right over the whole stern. When it caved in, it just washed them out. They went with it. You have no idea what that storm was like. We went in that room at 10 o'clock Monday night. And that's when we started taking a pounding. Tons of water started dropping on us. And I mean tons of it. It, it just, it shook us to pieces. And don't think we weren't afraid because we didn't know what minute everything was just going to collapse around us. Fisherman Joe Fountain and Corky Fisher told boat owner Clyde Cross about the stranded sailors. The three offered their help to the local Coast Guard but were refused. So they decided to head out that next day to rescue the Novodoc's crew. That's a great story. Wednesday at noon, the storm started to abate. And before long, we saw this boat coming towards us. We thought to ourselves, my God, somebody's coming to our rescue. And sure enough, that boat came up to the bow of the boat. They took on everybody off the bow. Then they come back to the stern of the boat. And the chief engineer and the second engineer stood there and helped us get into the boat and then they got in. But they helped us in, they looked after us. They did a mar oh, they were marvelous people, you know. And they helped us into the boat and then we started heading for shore. Coast Guardsmen tried to launch a rescue in Pentwater but found water too shallow. They attempted to get Cross to pull them out of the mud. Cross, Fisher and Fountain all denied they heard those calls for help. Yes, there was a bit of friction between the two of them. And uh, I don't know what all it was, but uh, they, they, they said something when they were going by. See, they had to go back by the, uh, the Coast Guard to get out. So they, 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 they got their motor running on the, on the fishing tug, and it was froze up. So uh, Corky had to uh, put water over top of the motor and the pump to uh, get it thawed out. And then once they got it thawed out, well, then they then they went by the Coast Guard station and out. And their main concern was to go out and get us. Uh, in the paper, it said they were going out to look at their nets, but uh, they were going for us. History has blurred how the rescue actually occurred. Newspapers seem to contradict Howard's recollection. One article includes a quote from Goldie in 1940, saying the crew in the back made their way forward and that John Peterson had to crawl across the break because of injuries received from nails and wooden debris when the cooks were killed. Wheelsman Lloyd Belcher worried about everyone fitting into the tiny fish boat. I didn't think we could all get in it. There were 17 of us. And uh, every time the wave get up to the level of the deck, one of us would jump in. And, and then it would go down, and then it come up again, and another one would jump in. And, uh, but by the time 17 of us got in, then uh, we were well on the way. 
it took the boat down quite a little bit. Uh, the old Buick engine he had in it was, uh, he thought maybe it was going to conk out, but it kept going. And don't think that wasn't a rough ride. That little fishing boat did everything but turn upside down. But it finally got ashore and they took us into the Coast Guard station. The Coast Guards, they wouldn't come out to get us. It was too rough for them. They wouldn't come. But that little fishing boat came out. 20 people were now cramped into the three brothers and the eight mile ride included conversations about other sailors who weren't so fortunate. We were talking about uh, the other ships that uh, uh, the fishermen had told us that they were picking up bodies on the shore from uh, the NSC Minch and the William B. Davok. Well, I didn't know anyone on the Davok, that was an American ship, but uh, the NSC Minch was Canadian and uh, I, knew, uh, I knew quite a few of them because there were a lot of them from Midland. The Minch was over 130 feet longer than the Novodoc. Partially loaded with grain, it was heading for Chicago. Lloyd had seen the ship about 30 miles off Grand Haven before it turned around, possibly to try and find shelter from the gale. Yes, we had met the Minch earlier in the afternoon. It wasn't making any headway and we weren't either. So that's why we're, both ships went down the same place pretty well. The Minch was a Canadian ship, and Lloyd knew several men among the 24 who were lost. My girlfriend had two brothers on it. And uh, in fact, uh, when their bodies were found, they were shipped to the morgue in Toronto. And uh, I, I, I took the mother and the girlfriend down and, and another sister to identify the bodies. So uh, when we got to the morgue, I, opened the car door and opened the door for them and they wouldn't go in. Oh, they, uh, they said it was just too, too much, they, could, they couldn't go in. So uh, I went in and identified them then, uh, Clifford and Howard Contois. It was inconceivable to Lloyd that a modern steel freighter that size could vanish with all of its crew. I had no idea that it would go down. It was a quite a big ship, it was twice the size of us. And uh, Captain Kennedy was from Collingwood, he was on it. Only a few miles from the Minch, the 420-foot steamer William B. Davick rolled over in the gale. Its rudder tore loose from the skeg and jammed into the propeller. Without propulsion, it was at the mercy of the storm. Port Sanilac native Captain Billy Allen was in command. His niece, Peggy Munoz, remembers that it was Billy that paid for her teaching degree in 1940. She named her first son, William Allen, in his memory. He'd come and visit us in Detroit in the wintertime. I can remember him coming oh. over. He was a, a very um, affable, um, really charming, I think. You know, the kind of person that you, you take to right away. Captain Billy wrote a letter to his family, which was picked up by the mailboat in Detroit as the Davik passed upbound for Lake Huron. So it was written, I think the date was November 9th, and the storm that took him was November 11th. So they must have gotten the letter when they knew that the ship was, was gone. Captain Billy joked in his letter that the Davik was a midnight ship, 
unloading at midnight in Buffalo and arriving in Erie, Pennsylvania at midnight to load. At the foot of German Street, he eased the Davick into the Pittsburgh and Erie dock to receive 7,200 tons of coal, about three quarters full. His letter tells about how he had to stop a fight that broke out when several firemen and oilers got drunk on rubbing alcohol. All but one of them had been kicked off the ship when they loaded ore in Escanaba. He cared for his mother. He wanted her to take care of herself. And he had all those personal things. And then he had the story of the fights on the ship. And he had to, uh, uh, I guess, fire or put, put the ones who were fighting off. And he picked up another sailor there in Detroit. Captain Billy wrote that he hoped to return to Michigan for Thanksgiving, but only his letter would make it home. After turning back from his course to Chicago, the Davik rolled over in heavy seas near Little Point Sable. Fourteen bodies were recovered, including the mates who were all wearing life jackets. Captain Billy, who survived the great storm of 1913, was lost. His oversized wicker chair washed ashore near Ludington. In one of the books that I've read about the wreck, uh, that wicker chair washed up on the beach at, at Ludington. And the, one of the officials in the uh, steamship company was there combing the beach looking for sailors. And he saw that chair and he said, yes, I, I saw that in Captain Allen's uh, room, or whatever they call it, quarters. And he said, I said to him, how did you get it through the door? And he said, well, we really had to work to get it through the door. So that chair washed up coal on the beach. I don't know who has it now. <laughs> Davik may have been the largest of the ships lost in the Armistice Day storm, but it's not the biggest shipwreck on Lake Michigan. The massive Carl D. Bradley, lost in 1958, is nearly 200 feet longer than the Davik. It doesn't matter how big a boat is. She can go down the same as any other boat. The Fitzgerald was a prime example of it. It went down with all people aboard. They never knew what happened. On November 13th, wheelsman Lloyd Belcher was thanking God for his arrival in Pentwater. The Coast Guard station was too icy to safely disembark, so Clyde Cross brought his tug into his fish shanty and the men were driven to the station. It's a, a long breakwater going down and uh, so we were, some of us rode on deck, others were, had to stay inside. The fishing boat had a long cover over it and uh, so uh, as we were going along we could see the people on the, on the docks watching us and taking pictures and, and then uh, we landed right at the Coast Guard station and that's where we all got off and went in. And in the Coast Guard station was a big round pot-bellied stove, and it was warm. And then they bought out all the rum we could drink. I had three or four shots of rum. I dearly loved rum. And we stood there and drank rum. Then they took us in for something to eat. And I never saw a pile of sausages like it. That platter must have been three feet long and the sausage were, was piled two feet high on that. And boy, were we, we were hungry. 
And we had that feed if we had our dinner. Then they took us to a nice warm room and told us to lie down on the bed. We took our clothes off and they took the clothes and dried them out. We were wringing wet. We went to bed with nothing on and they dried our clothes out for us, which was nice of them to do that. Howard and the rest of the crew were brought to a telegram office to finally get word to their family that they had survived. Lloyd knew his family would be worried. My dad was up uh, deer hunting up in, uh, oh, about 200 miles north of, of uh, Victoria Harbor. That's where he lived. And uh, they had a battery radio. And uh, they picked up on the radio where uh, there was three ships in trouble. And one was the Novodoc. And he knew I was on it, so uh, so he said to one of the fellows, he said, well, he says, I want to go home. They had my, my car up there, but my dad couldn't drive. So uh, one of the other fellows that drove it up, uh, they, they got in the uh, car then and started for home. And when they got to uh, Huntsville, they went in a restaurant and uh, listened to the news in there. and. Uh, and it wasn't very encouraging. His first report, uh, we were all gone. And then uh, after he got home, they said there might be life. Uh, so they thought, well, there's hope that, that we are going to get out of it. And, and then, there, then they got another report where some, some were drowned and some were saved. And, then when they got my telegram, well, they knew I was all right. What Lloyd sent to his family was short and to the point. Safe ashore, home soon. So I didn't say too much on it. I just wanted them to know that I was safe. <laughs> After a bus ride to Muskegon, they were placed on a train for Toronto. It took Lloyd two days to get back to Midland, Ontario. Oh, there was a lot of people at the station. Yeah, there was, uh, there was quite a few there. Yeah, I forget how many is there. I got I got some pictures taken at the uh, at the station. It was uh, uh, some of my, my my relatives, and then the ones from the Minch. There there was there were some some of them people down there. They wanted to talk to us too. It was quite a thing to land back in Toronto again. They put us up in a a hotel overnight there, and then the next morning went back up to Midland. A very similar shipwreck occurred nearly 140 miles northwest of the Novodoc. Coast Guardsman Doug McCormick had last seen it in northern Green Bay when the waters were calm. Well, it was a nice sunny day like, uh, like today, but it was about 65 degrees. The wind was southeast. We got a call from the uh, Empire State that he'd lost his steering, that uh, they wanted to, they called a guy from Milwaukee. They wanted to know if we'd pick him up. So we took off from, uh, uh, we went to, took off, and went over to Door Bluff, contacted the uh, Sinaloa and talked to him. And we told him that uh, uh, the barometer was very low. We figured that the wind was going to shift. But he said he thought he would go down the lake, head down the lake. 
So he did. McCormick tried to get an electrician aboard the freighter called Empire State, but the storm soon made that impossible. Then they heard of a shipwreck some 30 miles to the north. Doug was at the wheel when they set course for Upper Michigan. And it, we clocked 105 miles an hour. So then we got this call that the Sinaloa was aground up at uh, Sac Bay, or Burnt Bluff. So we took off, and uh, we got out in the, off of uh, Boyer Bluff into the uh, passage of uh, Rock Island Passage. And the sea was coming in from Rock Island and also from Green Bay, and they were peaking. And I was steering, uh, I remember Marcus Olson, he was in charge. And we had Phil Peterson aboard, and uh, he said, Marcus, you better steer. And, uh, and uh, Marcus said, oh, Max, doing fine. He, but I'd get up on one of those peaks and twirl, <laughs> go right around. They would peak, you know. And did we make time going up to uh, um, Burnt Bluff? Remember that these rescuers were in a boat only 36 feet long. Well, it's got a cabin aft and, a, and the engine is covered and then there's a, um, another compartment up on the bow. But they're, they're a good boat. They, you, could, uh, you could roll them over and everything else. And uh, Sturgeon Bay, they came up and they run over Fisherman Island, right over the island and rolled over and it broke the, uh, the uh, old spray shield offer and uh, broke the uh, spray hood. That's all they had was a spray hood on them. So they never got up there. Doug found that local fishermen had already removed half of the 41-person crew from the back of the Sinaloa. Irv Bates shares this rare interview with his grandfather, fisherman and rescuer Cecil Shaw. He wanted to know if some of us would uh, go out there and try to take some of them guys off because they couldn't stay in the, in the back end of the ship all night because it was freezing and, the, and the, the, the cabin was breaking up. Nineteen men were brought ashore in rowboats, pulling on a lifeline that had been run ashore. It was a, it's a boat that we use, use for setting nets and pulling nets and stuff like that. So he took a load of men, and I took a load of men after we got out there, and one, one of them had a wooden leg. He had a little trouble sliding down the rope. They had to slide down the rope into our boat. And uh, so when we started back, I told the guys in my boat uh, to, uh, when, it, when they see a big wave coming, I'd tell them to hold on tight. Just like the Novodoc, the Sinaloa had broken its back, and the forward crew were isolated from the aft. Munising's Coast Guard arrived at 3 a.m. to begin taking them off the wreck in a breeches buoy. The second to the last rescue was Captain William Fontaine. Oh yeah, it was about 400 pounds, I guess, or 500, I don't know, but he, he was underwater most of the time. It wasn't designed for it, no, not, not that weight. <laughs> you had to tighten up your lines pretty good, but, but he, he wasn't there long, and got him, got him in. Cecil remembers a bonfire was made from wreckage washing ashore. 
It was used to warm the survivors after 48 hours in the storm. I'll say one thing, the state police were there and they weren't afraid to wade out in the water and help them guys, they did that. They did that. And uh, I, I could see them big waves coming, so I tell the guys each time, hold tight, don't let, don't let this wave take us. So they'd all hold tight on the line. Howard Goldsmith knows exactly what the crew of the Sinaloa had gone through, out of control on Lake Michigan's worst storm. You go through something like that, and there's something you want to forget about. Like I've wanted to forget about the Nova Dock for 60 years. It was a terrible thing that I went through, and I would just love to forget about it. And the only way to forget about it is just don't talk about it. That's the only way to forget about it. If somebody asked you something, just say, I don't know. That's the only way you can escape that. It was fishermen who did the lion's share of rescuing in this storm, and investigations were launched after heavy criticism was printed about the three brothers' rescue. Because the Coast Guard didn't have guts enough to do it. They had the ability, but they didn't have the guts. That was what it was all about. And the Coast Guard were as mad as hell because somebody else did it. That was, that was the story behind that. Pentwater Station did get a rescue off the Novodoc just a few days after the wreck, when a camera shop owner named Jerome Jorison rode out to the shipwreck with a friend to take pictures. They assumed the ship was abandoned. Got our rowboat in the water and, and secured, rode out to the Novodoc and secured it. Well, this was fine. This was about 10 o'clock in the morning. We spent two hours taking pictures and looking the whole ship over. When to our dismay, we went back to our rowboat, it wasn't there. We didn't know what to do. We looked out in the Lake Michigan, we saw the, our rowboat looked about halfway to Milwaukee. I didn't tie it, Jack did, because I was a Boy Scout master, I could tie a better knot than that. So I went to a cabins, found a sheet, and hung it up on the flagpole, kept running it up and down, up and down. A local man saw their distress signal and called the Coast Guard. They were in the middle of their investigation and not happy about the trespassers. Well, they said, what the hell are you guys doing out here? <laughs> and I said, well, we came to claim the ship. He said, you can't claim the ship. Well, I said, oh, yes, we can. They didn't argue with me. Back in Singhampton, Howard Goldsmith was just happy to be home. His brother returned to the lakes, but Howard had a reason to stay on solid ground. I was married to the nicest girl that ever lived. Her picture is there. Beautiful. She was a gorgeous girl. She was a school teacher. We had one of the greatest romances that two people ever had. Howard retired as a welder for General Motors. Anything they wanted made, I made it for them. If they wanted a, a utility rack or something made, or anything they wanted made, go and see Goldie, he'll make it for you. And I did it, and I was good at it. I was an excellent welder. Lloyd was reluctant to sail again. His next wheeling job was inside the cab of a truck. I went driving transport for a short time, and uh, then after, after I heard the whistles blowing in the harbor, I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm gonna go back sailing. With a World War looming, he joined the Navy and became a helmsman on the Canadian frigate Matan. Lloyd was at the wheel when they sailed into D-Day. We were bombed off uh, Brest and France. We were guarding the uh, lower part of the channel during the uh, invasion. 
and uh, the Germans had a, a bomb that they could drop from a plane away up in the sky and uh, they could radio it down. So we'd go one way, they'd turn the bomb that way, so we just couldn't get out of the way of it. And it, uh, it hit us about 15 feet from the wheelhouse. It hit us on the deck right, right close to the uh, side and then it went right through the deck and out the side and then it blew up. And then it filled up the uh, engine room and uh, see it's the watertight compartments that saved us. So uh, the engine room filled up with water and then it was all oil over the water. And So after this was all over, I went down and I, I looked in the uh, engine room. An awful mess. Seen bodies floating around in there. Seven men were lost in the explosion and Lloyd stayed with the ship as it was repaired. It was his last combat assignment and his last time at the wheel of a ship. First thing I come home, they asked me if I, uh, the day of discharge, they asked me if I wanted my old job back again. I says, no. I said, uh, I said, I'm finished sailing forever. So I went to uh, building houses for uh, Con Smythe. Uh, he was, uh, he was a builder. He also had Maple Leaf Gardens and the, the hockey team here. And uh, he was building houses in Roselands in Etobicoke. So I worked there for a while and it was getting kind of cold and I thought, oh, I, I don't want to spend the winter out building houses. So uh, I was offered a job with A&P stores in the carpenter end of it. Spent 38 years there. In 2001, I traveled to Ontario to record the interviews you're hearing today. Howard, then nearly 87 years old, didn't mince words when asking me why it took so long for someone to be interested in the Armistice Day storm. What amazes me is this. You see, that happened 60 years ago. And why did they wait until now to bring up this story? Why didn't they do it 25 years ago? when all the main characters were alive, like our, the chief engineer, the second engineer, everybody was alive to tell their story. Why didn't they do it then? I don't understand that. They have to wait until Lloyd and I are almost dead, then they want the story. Empowered by Howard's comments, I went searching for the rest of the story. The Davik had been discovered by divers in 1972, but no good coordinates existed as to where it was. I hired wreck hunter Dave Trotter to relocate it. The other thing we're seeing, too, is a lot of initial debris right in here before we get to the main hull. In just over 200 feet of cold Lake Michigan water, the shadow of an overturned hull was echoed back to the sonar. The printed image doesn't look much like a freighter. Trotter says that's where experience is key. They always give you the pretty picture when they're selling you the equipment, then you find out that it takes an awful lot of uh, skill and just on-hand experience to be able to interpret what comes out on the printer that you're using for uh, uh, site scan application. Jeff Moore suited up for a single dive to the Davik, guessing where the stern was and following a float line that was estimated to be near the rudder. Nearly blinded by cloudy water and darkness, his camera only found debris. Well, we had some suspicions that uh, we could get hooked into the wrong spot and 
Uh, in fact, that's what I discovered when I got to the bottom. Uh, nothing looked like anything that I was familiar with. And uh, uh, there was a bunch of twisted metal around, and uh, uh, it was very dark. And um, it turned out that uh, I was on the stack, which uh, we later discovered uh, doing the blow-ups, that it was a piece of debris off, 30 foot off the wreck. Everything okay, Jeff? Yeah, sure is a current here. I knew it. I'll pull it. Make sure you get up forward, buddy. In our quest to find eyewitnesses to this terrifying storm, we made many new friends, and eventually someone gave me a keepsake from the storm. It was a piece of one of the three lifeboat oars from the William Davick. I knew I couldn't keep it. It belonged in a museum or perhaps in the hands of the captain's family who never got to bury their uncle. It's amazing, you know, that just this yes. one piece yeah, Maybe it was longer and they cut it. Do you suppose it looks like? Oh, certainly. In fact, I think that's part of the paddle itself. Mm -hmm. You know, that that would be the, uh, the thick part of the paddle. I shared Jeff Moore's footage of the Davick with the niece of Captain Billy. I think it's important to learn what you can about how a ship goes down. Obviously, there are indications on the, on the ship itself of what went wrong. And if in the case of the Davik, it, and the chain had broken or whatever had it really did happen. It'd be nice to have documentation of that. And I think all of these, these things are part of the history of the area. And um, uh, certainly I want to know everything I can. And uh, the footage that, that uh, Rick showed me, it was like seeing the burial site. Of, that, of those men, and it's so peaceful down there. It's you know, it's something that uh, that should be available to people. That there's uh, there's an ending, uh, a finalization uh, to it all. Lloyd Belcher also looked for that finalization, returning to Pentwater to see what was left of his ship. Right over here. Eh? Look at that. Look at that. Yeah, I got the camera on her. Right Look at that big piece of her. Look at that. Isn't that something, mate? In uh, 1997, I guess it was, I said to uh, my wife Barbara, I said, uh, I said, you know, I said, I'd like to go back to where the Novodoc went down mm -hmm. just to see the place. And uh, maybe some of the fishermen are still alive there. And so uh, we uh, rented a tent trailer and uh, we went over and so we went down to a park, Meese Park, they called it. It's right, right down on the water. And I asked about Corky. Oh, he knew Corky. So uh, I says, fine. I said, he was, uh, he was on the fishing boat that saved us. Uh, I was on the Novodoc when it went down here. So uh, he uh, got on the phone and he got hold of Corky. And just in a few minutes, Corky was in to see me. So we had quite a chat, and then the, the, the third fisherman, uh, he went down to Detroit after that, and uh, they never heard from him after, so. But uh, Clyde uh, went down to California. He did fishing down there, and I guess he, he did quite a bit of fishing down different places down there. But he was a great fisherman. The voices you've heard from the storm have all since passed away. 
Their stories were first broadcast in my PBS documentary, Safe Ashore, named for Lloyd's brief telegram home to his parents. I also featured their stories in my book, The Wheelsman. As you can understand, Howard Goldsmith's commentary is a highlight of every maritime concert we've put on. The crew of the Novodoc were never forgotten. The crew of the Fitzgerald, they went down, and there was nobody, nobody to tell their story. This is what happened on the Great Lakes. There's been hundreds of boats gone down in the Great Lakes, and nobody has lived to tell the story. Like Lake Huron is a sailor's graveyard. It's been known about that for years. So many people have lost their lives on Lake Huron. The boat simply goes down and the bodies wash ashore. That's what happens. You see, when we went down on the Novodoc, all but two of us lived to tell our story. That's why we made history. I hope you've enjoyed this mixtory. It was fun to revisit these stories in such depth, and I again ask you to ask permission if you want to use them for maritime research. Credit for information found within this podcast should be to Airworthy Productions. You can check out our complete topic list on mixtories wherever cool podcasts are found or online at lakefury.com or rickmixter.com. That's R-I-C-M-I-X-T-E-R.com. And please give us a rating if you like what you hear. It may just lead to another Great Lakes Mixtories. Hey, it's Rick with a footnote and a few credits. The 1940 storm wouldn't have been possible without the help of a fantastic researcher named Brendan Baylod. It features a great interview from J. Irvin Bates and the music of Dan Hall and Ron Bloomfield. Did you know Clyde Cross and the Fishermen were honored by the Canadian government for the Novodoc rescue? They each got 25 bucks and Clyde received a silver platter. This award and the wheel and bell of the Novodoc are on display at the Pentwater Historical Museum. If you want to learn more about the storm, check out my book, The Wheelsman, or the documentary Safe Ashore, found at lakefury.com. It seems only appropriate to leave you with Dan Hall and David O. Norris' song, Safe Ashore. Well underway on a November day, the Nova Dock bound for Quebec. Met the Minch and the Davick, all headed for havoc. Green water has no respect for a ship and her crew. The survivors are few when the waves of Lake Michigan roar. Seventeen cried for the sixty who died. There's no solace to be safe ashore. Safe. Shouted down, the mountain waves crowned, the crews faced the black of the storm. They stared in the eyes of the demon-filled skies, unlikely they'd ever see more. Lake Michigan waves are lonely cold graves for those who are caught in that roar. 
Prayers are the breath of those spared in death Who arise in the dawn, save for sure Save for sure Save for sure Save for sure.